Good morning, Hillside. How are you all doing this morning? It's great to be with you this morning as we make our final stop on our journey to Jerusalem series that Jesus and his disciples, they are on final approach. Dan, it's been 13 weeks since you kicked us off, 13 weeks ago. And we do remember the words that you preached, Dan, like (laughs) you were concerned about that last week. But we do remember you took us to chapter nine and you reminded us when Luke said that Jesus resolutely set his face on Jerusalem. And the reason that he did that is he knew exactly what he was gonna do when he got to Jerusalem. He was going to accomplish the mission and all of the Father had sent him to do. And what is that mission? Well, in Luke 19, Jesus put it this way. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And just how would he go about accomplishing that mission? In the verses that immediately follow our text for today, Jesus says this to his disciples. We are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished, for he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked, and he will be mistreated, and he will be spit upon, and after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day, he will rise again. The off-ramp of our journey, this last uh, event, is the very sad story of the rich young ruler. It's a very important story because in it, we get Jesus' response to a very important question. And that question is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So if you have your Bibles with you, there's some Bibles in front of you. I also have printed uh, the text today in your outline. Follow along with me as I read. Verse 18, Luke chapter 18. A ruler questioned him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And, the, the, uh, and he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. Hmm. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich, wealthy. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Pray with me. Lord, Lord God, speak to us for your servants are listening. Open our ears and open our hearts to what you have for each one of us this morning by your word. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Amen. Let's begin by noticing that in our text this morning, it is, a, it is a message all about salvation through and through. There's a handful of words and phrases that are in this text for us this morning. It begins with a question to Jesus about eternal life. It ends with a comment from Jesus 
about eternal life. There are three times the mention of the kingdom of heaven. You'll see it in verse 24 and 25 and 29. Jesus uses this phrase, treasure in heaven. And someone in the crowd towards the end says, well, then who can be saved? So this is an episode about who can be saved, who is fit for the kingdom of God, and how one enters eternal life. Uh, a real quick detour, uh, it will help us in our study of this lesson this morning to be reminded of how Jesus spoke about entrance into the kingdom and eternal life. So we go to John chapter three, to that place where Jesus is talking to that synagogue ruler by the name of Nicodemus. And he says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again or born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in verse five, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Here Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus that entrance into the kingdom is not a human achievement. It is a born from above work of God it is a regenerating work of the Spirit, or as Dan said a few weeks ago, a respiriting work of the Holy Spirit. It is something that cannot be earned. It is but only a gift, for it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And even that faith isn't a human achievement. It, too, is a gift of God. And then in the fifth chapter of John, one of my very favorite verses, verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who hears my word and believes the one who sent me, has already passed out of condemnation, has already passed out of death and into life. Here Jesus is telling the crowd that eternal life is less about a quantity of life and more about a quality of life, a quality of life that can begin here and now and then gets most fully realized in the there and then. This, my friends, this is eternal life. Do you have it? It's also going to help us in our study of this passage to recall some of the episodes that lead up to our verse for today. And Luke has been stringing together these parables and these teachings that are all helping us understand the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. He's helping us to reorient ourselves around what it is that the kingdom values and how it is that the, of the currency on which the kingdom runs. Case in point, Dan's passage last week. Do you remember it? I hope. <laughs> the parable between the respected Pharisee and the tax collector. And the parable goes, two men go up to the temple to pray. First one on the scene is the Pharisee who takes center stage. Jesus kind of says this guy was pretty much praying to himself and he's patting himself on the back and he's saying, thank you God that I'm not like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week and I pay my tithe. And then you have the tax collector. He's off in a corner somewhere. He's not patting his back. What's he doing? He's beating his chest, a sign of mourning. And he prays this, excuse me, this desperate prayer. God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And so I ask you the question, which one went down the hill justified? Which one? The tax collector is the one. And what's the upside down nature, kingdom principle in this story? 
in verse 14, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then uh, this next story, I just can't teach on the rich young ruler without teaching about what Jesus thinks about children. And it fits in very nicely with what you said, this, you and Carly were talking about this morning. People are, the crowds are bringing their babies to Jesus. Actually, the word that you, Luke uses is infants. He's bringing Jesus their infants. And they want Jesus to touch them and to bless them. And what do the disciples do? They rebuke the people. And Jesus comes up to them and says, what are you doing? How can we be doing this more? They're saying, people, leave the master alone. He can't be bothered with babies. He's an important man. He's got places to go. We're on our way to Jerusalem, and we're leading the way, by the way. And he's got important people that he wants to see, like this rich young ruler that's approaching us now. And Jesus says, infants and children are not expendables in my kingdom. They are the ones that are to be most valued. And what's the upside down kingdom principle punctuating this episode? Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, like an infant, or as an infant would receive something, you will not enter it at all. In other words, don't welcome me and turn away the marginalized. That's not how things work in my kingdom. What does it mean to receive the kingdom as an infant or as a child? Fortunately for Sally and I, on a weekly basis, we have an infant in our house. So a couple of weeks ago, I decided to try it out. I decided to ask my eight-month-old grandson uh, what it means to receive the kingdom like an infant. And I picked up my grandson and I said, Webb, what does it mean? And you know what he told me? He told me I'm only an infant. I'm helpless, and, and I'm, uh, I'm completely helpless, and I'm trusting, and those completely trusting, and lo those who love and care for me. So with these pictures of begging tax collectors and helpless and trusting infants, let's dive into our story. Verse 18, a ruler questioned him. First thing we learn about this, this individual is he's a ruler, likely a synagogue ruler, like Nicodemus was a synagogue ruler. In verse 23, we learn that he's not only wealthy, he's very wealthy. And from uh, uh, Matthew's account in chapter 19, we learn that he is young, likely somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to 40 years old. Folks, this guy's got it all. He's got his wealth, he's got his youth, he's got this prestigious position, but something's not right, is it? Something is wrong. There's something that is missing. There's an uncertainty about his future which is causing an uneasiness in his present. So good for him. He realizes that something's missing. He goes to Jesus. Mark says he actually runs to him and kneels before him. He goes to the right person and he asks the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Did you catch it that there's something not quite right about his question? 
What is it? What is it, Matt? He wants the end result. And he asks, what shall I do? That's not the kind of question of a trusting infant. That's not quite the question of a sinning tax collector who knows that he's already been disqualified by his sin. But the tax collector, I'm, I'm sorry, but, but the rich young ruler, conversely, he's transactionally oriented, and he has plenty with which to transact. He's got his wealth, he's got his powerful position. So he asks the question, what shall I do? And Jesus responds with a series of questions. They start like this. Why do you call me good? You know the commandments. One thing you lack. Let's take them one at a time. Test number one is a test of sincerity. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Basically what Jesus is saying is this. Look, you're calling me good teacher. That means uh, that you're somehow equating me with God or connecting me to God or I'm some kind of messenger of God. So if that's true, if you're coming to me with a sincere question and you think that I'm God, when I give you the answer to your question, to, to your question, are you going to do what I say? The second test is a test of the law. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Jesus takes the man to familiar territory if you're a synagogue ruler. He takes him to the Ten Commandments, and he lists five of the six commandments that have to do with our horizontal relationships. By the way, there's one that he skips. It's the last one. Thou shalt not covet. Hmm. Thou shalt not covet. The rich young ruler confidently responds, oh, this is great. I've, I've kept all of them, and even since I was a youth. And Jesus says, yeah, no, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, yeah, right. He, he could have said, did you happen, were you there when I gave my Sermon on the Mount? Were you there when I said the thing about if you hate your brother, you've already broken number six, you shall not murder. And uh, if you look on a woman with lust, you've already broken number seven. You've already um, broken, you shall not commit adultery. But he doesn't go there yet. He doesn't challenge him. It's likely this, that this rich young ruler did not believe that he had perfectly kept the law uh, relative to his peers, and if God were grading on the curve, he felt he was gonna get an A. The problem for the rich young ruler is that the law demands perfection. James tells us, if you stumble over one of these, you've become guilty of all of them. The problem for the rich young ruler is he didn't understand the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was not to be a means to earn salvation. The purpose of the law, among other things, was to convict us of our sin and push us in the direction of our need for a savior. Here's how Paul puts this topic on the law. In Romans 7, he says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have come to know about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. Rather than uh, challenging the rich young ruler, the Jesus, Jesus moves on to the third test. And this is the one he's been building up to 
all along. This is the one that's going to expose his lack. This is the one that's going to cut to the heart. Verse 22. Test number three is a test of our loves and our loyalties. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then follow me, come follow me. And when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy, very rich. Jesus doesn't ask everyone to sell everything. But he does ask everyone to be willing to sell everything. Put it another way, back when Dan led us at our first uh, stop in the Jerusalem journey, in chapter, uh, in chapter 9, Jesus says, he says this, we are to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow him. Jesus diagnosed this man's disease. He offered the prescription for the, for the cure. He put his finger on the one thing that was preventing the man's interest, the man's entrance into the kingdom. What's the one thing for you? And if it's not the one thing that's preventing you from entering the kingdom, perhaps it's the one thing that's preventing us from more joyfully and more lovingly and more peacefully and more with the blessed assurance that was just played for us so beautifully that we otherwise might enjoy for those of us who have eternal life. For the rich young ruler, it was his wealth. For someone else, it might be a relationship or a habit or a sense of intellectual superiority that prevents one from receiving the kingdom by faith in a childlike way. The rich young ruler, friends, was no keeper of the law. He was a cold-blooded idolater and likely a coveter as well. This guy loved his stuff. Jesus knew it, and by the way, so did the rich young ruler. Do you know how we know that? We know it by Yes, by his response, absolutely. He, he was sad, and Mark adds, that not, and so does Matthew, that he left. The rich young ruler becomes the very sad rich young ruler. He exits the stage, and we never hear about this guy again. That marks the end of our episode. What's left is Jesus' commentary on the episode. It's Jesus' post-game analysis, if you will. <laughs> Verse 24, and Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. As Jesus is watching the very sad rich young ruler leave, he says to, he says to the crowd, tells them how hard it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom. Just how hard is it? Is it really hard? Is it extremely hard? What is it? It's impossible. It's impossible. And Jesus borrows this um, proverbial saying 
the, the, about the, the eye of the needle and the camel. He said, it's like trying to thread the largest animal in that region through the smallest of apertures. Sally and I like to fly fish. And we head up to the Sierras every summer and fish the rivers and streams and creeks. And every year it's getting a little bit harder for me, especially that part about taking that tip of my fly line and trying to put that <laughs> fly line through that little tiny hole at the tip of my fly. Now imagine me on the edge of a creek, slippery creek, attempting to pick up a thousand pound animal and thread that thing through that little hole. It would be impossible. That's how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God by human achievement. By the way, if it wasn't that hard, if it was in fact impossible, if it wasn't impossible, then why in the world was Jesus on his way to Jerusalem to be handed over to the Gentiles, to be mocked, to be spit upon, to be scourged, and to be killed? And note the crowd understands exactly what Jesus means by this threading the camel through the eye of the needle. Those who hear it, verse 26, asked, well then, who can be saved? By the way, people in that time, if, if they believed that if somebody was uh, rich and, and respected, that was a proof that God's favor and blessing was upon their life. So they say, if that guy can't be saved, then who can be saved? Notice it's no longer about the rich. Now it's about anyone and it's about everyone from all walks of life. And as Jesus is speaking to the crowd and as his disciples are listening and they're thinking about their own lives, their chief spokesperson uh, speaks up and Peter says, hey Jesus, what about us? Peter, verse 28, Peter said, Behold, we've left our home, homes. Another way of saying, your Bible might say, we've left all, or we've left everything. We left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly, truly. Do you notice how many times when Jesus is talking about the kingdom or about salvation, he said, starts it with truly, truly? I just noticed that the last couple of weeks. Truly, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers, or parents, or children for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive many times as much at this time, at this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Notice Peter doesn't get a rebuke this time, does he? Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter for saying, hey Jesus, what about us? In fact, Jesus responds with promise. And the promise provides us with insights into the economy of God's kingdom. Unlike your financial investments, which have disclaimers on them telling you about the inherent risks in investing, Jesus brings along a, a, a promise of a guaranteed return. Luke's, Luke's account says many times as much return. Mark's account says a hundred times return. Back in September, Sally and I uh, went to a memorial service for Steve Woods. Some of you might know Steve. Um, Steve died at the age of 71. Uh, he had spent 45 of his 71 years serving, get this, children as a young life director, as if he was serving Jesus. 
Steve died without his wife or his family nearby. He got sick and he died in a hospital in Bangladesh. And as Sally and I were in this memorial service, I couldn't help but notice just how much Steve had left behind. But at the same time, I couldn't help but notice how much he gained. There were over 500 people at his funeral. There were people from the state of Washington and from Diablo Valley and from Livermore and from India and from Bangladesh, all the people that Steve had ministered to and blessed. For me, that was a vivid portrayal of a 100x return, well-lived life. If you're here this morning and you're thinking about this story of the, of the rich young ruler who had this incredible invitation from the savior of the world and who counted the cost and who said no thanks. If you're in that position where the invitation is coming to you and you've never received it, I would encourage you to consider making this day the day that you receive that invitation. We're gonna have people up front and in the back praying at the end of service. And I'd invite you, uh, by the way, I, I go up and have these people pray for me all the time because I desperately need it and I'm greatly blessed when I do. I'd, I'd have you encourage it. I'd encourage you to go up and speak with them about that decision. If you're like me and you have eternal life, but you're having trouble, you're having trouble uh, experiencing the peace and the joy that, that is to come alongside with eternal life, then I ask you and I invite you to do what I'm doing, I'm inviting, I'm, I'm taking test number three. I'm inviting Jesus to come in and examine my life. And I'm inviting him to put his finger on the one or two or three things that are preventing me from more joyfully and more loyally and more lovingly operating in Jesus' kingdom. I invite you to do the same. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your determination to go to Jerusalem. Thank you for going there not to be served, but to serve, to give your life as a ransom for us. Thank you, Jesus, for making the impossible possible. Thank you for continuously reorienting us around the values of your kingdom. Lord, I ask your blessing upon each of these men and women this morning. And I pray in your precious name. Amen. Amen. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, may the love of God the Father, and may the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in his peace today. Have a great day.